Welcome to a brand new episode of Half the Battle. I'm your host as always, Daniel Levy. Today's episode is brought to you by BestBuyPicks.com. Go to BestBuyPicks.com, type your email in that top right corner, and get the Best Buy Picks and podcast delivered to your inbox every single fight week. Joining me on this very special edition of Half the Battle is Robin Black from the Fight Network and my man Patrick Wyman from the Heavy Hands Podcast. Robin, welcome to Half the Battle. Thanks, man. It's going to be fun. I literally chilled this beer glass, and I got this beer specifically to hang out with two new friends and hang out and talk about fighting. It's going to be so fun. Well, we can't wait. And Patrick Wyman, man, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to chatting with y'all. Absolutely. So, Robin, you know, oh, it's funny. I got something in common with both of y'all. You know, Robin, obviously we do share that passion for the sport, but both of us are musicians. You know, you're a singer. I'm a drummer. We're both martial artists, and we love this sport. So I, I cannot wait to chat UFC Sao Paulo with you. And Patrick, I mean, you and I, we both have, you know, uh, we love the striking arts, man. We are aficionados for the striking. So I'm a big fan of the Heavy Hands podcast, and I cannot wait to speak with both of you right here, right now, live on Half the Battle. So first up, we got to talk about Pedro Munoz versus Jimmy Rivera. You know, Pedro Munoz, he's been out for over a year. But back when he fought last, a lot of people were saying this guy could be a future champion. But obviously, you know, a couple controversies outside of the ring occurred. And then with Jimmy Rivera, the kid's 17-1. and one. He's got the wrestling credentials. He can knock you out. He can submit you. Who is going to take this fight, Robin? Okay, first thing before we talk about these fights, we got to talk about what really one can accomplish when, like, trying to make predictions. You know what I mean? Like, when you're looking at what can we really, really accomplish here? And uh, I always tend to think what we can do is enrich the idea for people. Like, throw out some concepts that might make people go, oh, that's cool. What I don't always think is possible, no matter – the more you know about fighting, the harder it is to predict stuff because you realize just how many incredible variables there are. So I always try to, like, think in terms of, you know, like, talk – around the fights, talk around what's going on. What do they know? What what experience do they have? And I kind of think that's sort of the key. The biggest thing when you look at guys like this is, and we'll say, we'll be talking about the same thing with Almeida, is records like 17 and one and 19 and 0, what do they really, really mean? Like, what do you get at this, at this point? And the, the real answer is by the time you get in the UFC and you were like, you know, and in Rivera's case, he was 16 and 0. He goes into the UFC and he loses. Now, of course, it's to a Sun Sao and it's late. Uh, but why has that happened? Well, on the lower levels, especially in Brazil, there are, uh, and which is relevant to Almeida, there is the ability, like old school boxing, to go and fight guys much below you, right? So you have this record where we don't really know your full skill set, but you also have this incredible amount of experience to draw on. On 15, 16, 17 walks to the cage, weird variables. So that makes these guys way better fighters for young guys than, you know, some 7-0 and kid from the Midwest or some kid from Canada who has eight fights just because the amount of times they fought. And so it makes them more stable, the fighters. Yeah, absolutely. And when you talk about Jimmy Rivera, you know, he was actually beating UFC vets outside of the UFC before he even made it to the big show. And obviously with Pedro Munoz, you know, he did make his UFC debut against Rafael Asuncao. He went three hard rounds. And one doesn't simply make their UFC debut against Rafael Asuncao. Now, Patrick, what's your opinion of this fight? So I think it's a really interesting matchup because what you have in 
I, I think that what you have in Munoz is a guy who's who's more well-rounded. I think he he has more ways to win the fight. Um, he's uh, like so he trained uh, pretty extensively with one of my old coaches. What my coach told me was the first time that they went to wrestling practice together. Um, he he didn't know that Munoz was Brazilian. Um, they got to they got to going at it a little bit, and he assumed that Munoz was like a credentialed American wrestler. That that's that he was that good of a wrestler. He's got he's got really clean finishes on his takedowns. Uh, he's got a wide array of takedowns that he know that he knows how to use. Um, he's a, he's a legitimate nogi grappling champion. Uh, he's got a wide array of submissions on the ground. He's got an interesting transitional submission game. Um, and on the feet, he's getting better. I don't think that he's a killer of a striker yet. Um, I think he's improved from from where he was at from where he was at. Uh, but if this turns into a pure striking matchup, the edge has to go to Rivera. He's a, he's a clean combination puncher. He's got a really nice counter game. He throws a lot of volume. Um, I think that Munoz can keep it kind of even on the feet. It's everywhere else where he has the advantage. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, when you talk about this fight, you know, obviously you did mention the fact that both of these guys, their experience, both of them training out of good camps. So we got to mention that, you know, Jimmy Rivera, he is training – you know, in New Jersey with guys like Mark Henry, guys like Frankie the Answer Edgar, the former UFC lightweight champion. And then on the other hand, Pedro Munoz is training at the at the world-renowned Black House. And I even heard that he got some work in with Master Hoffa for this upcoming fight. Now, Robin, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean... At any level, at any of these guys' level, they have to be training at the top levels. You have to assume that guys are pretty good at everything. That idea where we – and it's something we all do. We all tend to look and go, you know, how do they match up in this one area or that one area? But these days it's – you know, the median level of everything is so incredibly high. It'll often come down to how you are in moments, not areas. You know, can you interrupt a guy's striking? Like, is your timing good? Can you pressure him? It's all that. So many of these feelways. And when we get up to the top of the, of the, uh, of the card, you'll see that you know, the most. How do you really describe, and we'll, we'll get to that later, but how do you really talk about Vitor and Dan Henderson? You talk about subtleties, and you talk about little tiny things that guys after 20 years know. And really, those things are what carries down. It's like, is one guy a better wrestler? I mean, in every fight, one guy may be a little better wrestler, but everybody kind of knows everything. Like, by the time you have 10 fights, everybody knows against the cage, we need this particular underhook, you need this particular uh, position. If I have pressure on your hip here, you need to turn your hip that way. Everybody kind of knows everything. So it's like, can you find those little moments within a fight to be able to interrupt a guy, to be able to catch a guy, to be able to trick a guy. And so, you know, what makes fights like this interesting for me when guys have a ton of experience, on the lower levels, what the reason we see so many, on the lower levels of cards, the reason we see so many knockouts is because guys are easily tricked. You know, you're thinking so hard about your big punch and another guy finds a time to, you know, make you think his head will be somewhere where it isn't or something. Big broad strokes tricks. When guys have 18 fights and 12 fights, it's way harder to do. So you get these more technical battles that kind of end up either going 15 minutes or somebody is more fatigued because the other guy used his gas tank better in late in round two and early in round three, and that guy ends up winning the fight. These ones are really hard to predict. It's hard to predict based on skill. Skill. That's why they're fun fights, and that's why these lower level or the lower on the card fights in Brazil get more interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be real interesting to see what goes down when they step inside the UFC's octagon. Now, next up, we got a featherweight bout between Chaz the Scrapper Skelly mm -hmm. and Kevin 
Souza. Now, a lot of people are saying Kevin Souza could be the next Anderson Silva. You know, at 145 pounds, he's very fluid on his feet. He's very good at using his range. But when you talk about Chaz the Scrapper Skelly, this guy is as relentless as they come. You know, just imagine a very polished Darren Elkins. That's what I think of when I think of Chaz the Scrapper Skelly. He's got knockout power on the feet, but he uses his wrestling in a chain motion. You know, if he gets you up against the fence and you stuff his takedown, he's not going to mentally break. He's going to keep trying to win till the bitter end. So for that reason, I am favoring Chaz the Scrapper Skelly to get the victory here, but you cannot discredit the striking of Kevin Souza. Now, Pat, what's your perspective on this featherweight fight? Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I mean, I have to say, I don't think that Souza has, has anything in common with, with Anderson Silva. He fights entirely differently. He's like, Souza is a, is a pure puncher, and he's a really right-hand dominant puncher, and that's, and that's his game. He throws it early and often, Sometimes he follows with the left hook, but for the most part, his game is, his game is the right hand. He throws it with great timing. He's got, he's got fantastic kind of striking intangibles in the sense that he does a really good job of seeing the direction that you're moving. He does a great job of placing shots. He does a great job of timing shots. Like, like his body shots are outstanding because you can see he picks the spots when you're going to breathe out, and, he, and that's when he places the shot. It's a beautiful punch that he throws, a really natural right hand. But this is about as close as you can get to a pure striker versus a striker versus grappler matchup in like the modern UFC. Like Souza is a pure puncher. He does not have other skill sets. That's what he. That's what he does. Um, Skelly is a better striker. His striking coach is is uh, is, is Stephen Wright, who's, uh, whom I've interviewed a few times. He's Johnny Hendricks' striking coach. He's awesome. Really sharp guy. Skelly has gotten better on the feet. Uh, he's got really good timing in exchanges. He's got a willingness to bite down and throw. Um, but really, the heart of his game. Is, is his ability in the transitions. He's not like a, a really clean finisher of takedowns, uh, but what he's really good at is, is getting you down, letting you move under him, and then the second that you expose your back to try to get back to your feet, he's got about a half dozen different moves to the back. Really, really skilled at getting to the back, and once he's there, he's a finisher. That's really his game, and so it's like a two-true outcome fight. Like, either Souza lands the right hand repeatedly and puts him, and puts him down, or Skelly gets him down and works the and works a submission. The the latter seems more likely to me. Now, Robin, yeah. Chaz Scrapper yeah. Skelly or Kevin Souza? I mean, I, like I said earlier, it's it's harder to pick fights than it is to look at the details that make a fight intriguing. Having said that, Skelly's going to win this fight. You know, um, I'll go as far as saying Souza has to win with right hands in the first half of the first round or the first half of the second round. Because as soon as you let a guy who's just a grinder, who's a, a, a distance closer, who's like really, you know, that like people are always like, oh, don't panic in a fight. There's times where panic is really good. And if you have that panicked element to close distance, if you have that sort of urgency to just get in and get on a guy, and that's so natural to Chaz Skelly, then you add this element. There's certain sort of reputations that fighters get in uh, like based on people will be like, oh, Mexican fighters are tough or Japanese fighters have all kinds of heart. Uh, typically, you don't like to, to uh, label people by where they grow up. You know, guys from Atlanta like to smoke weed. You know what I mean? Like, you don't like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, it's sort of rude to do that unless it's a big compliment. But one of the knocks against Brazilian fighters that I'm I, lately, I think is, is, um, uh, disrespectful and wrong, but a traditional knock has been about their level of strength and conditioning. The British, 
level of the high quality of wrestling is not there and the high quality of, of uh, strength and conditioning is, has traditionally not been there in Brazil. But I tend to think that that's overstated. Even having said that, you get some guy who spent his entire life in a wrestling room grinding and grinding and grinding, who has all those tools to do it. And I like what Patrick said too, he'll use that hip ride and that leg ride and get in and just kind of make you drag him around. And he doesn't really want to so much complete takedowns as he wants to force you down. And then as you're trying to get up, he carries your weight. And just as you're kind of weightless, he'll let you go. You'll go up. Then he'll grab your hips and try to drag you back down again. That drains you. There's no way uh, Salza knocks him out in the third round. And even late in the second round, I don't think he, he does. So he gets submitted by Skelly or uh, finished by ground strikes by Skelly or decision by Skelly unless he knocks him out early. Yeah, I'm picking Chaz the Scrapper Skelly as well. You know, you guys mentioned his striking coach is very good, and we see the results in the octagon. And, you know, if you compare his very first UFC fight to the last one he just had, I mean, it's day and night. The guy has clearly been putting in the hours on his stand-up skills. Now, next up, we got another featherweight matchup between Clay the Carpenter Guida and Tiago Tavares. Now, it's interesting because on paper, I do consider Tiago Tavares to be the more technical guy, but... Clay Guida has the more heart. He's the tougher guy. He's got more will to win. And sometimes it's not about who's the more technical guy. Sometimes it's about who wants it more. And I truly believe that Clay Guida wants it more. Now, Robin Black, who do you think wants it more? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, uh, Tavares is that same – he's like, you know, that same sort of version, push, 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 pressure fighter, pressure fighter. But I don't know. That's a, that's a really tough one. Clay Guida – is one of these guys who he shows off his gas tank and a lot of that uh, endurance kind of thing, especially that muscular endurance, wrestling endurance kind of thing. Some of it is psychological. Some of it is mindset. And Clay Guida's like, yeah, you will never get me tired. And it's kind of the evidence in Clay Guida's mind has proven that to be true over and over and over again for 40 some fights, you know? So he'll, he'll be beating you up in the third round and he rare, at least he used to rarely get finished. So it's a hard one though. Like by the time you're a guy like Clay Guida and you know, you've been striving and driving and a favorite and all these things, and fame starts to wear off. The money isn't, you know, you need the money because that's how you make your living, but you're not getting rich anytime soon. You know, maybe you're, the, the likelihood of being a champion is not there. You see him trying to use those other elements, uh, being fancy on the microphone and saying controversial shit, which people start to do. Sometimes those are signs that 42 or 45 or what has he got, 47 fights, Sometimes you start to see signs that at 47 fights, maybe you don't really have that because it doesn't last forever. One day, you don't have that forever. So it's, it's really hard to say. We often try to predict fights based on who a fighter was. Now, in a lot of cases, we're saying, oh, we expect this fight to look that way. We're talking about a guy who fought eight months ago who's exponentially improved. Then there's also these cases where you're talking about a fight from X months ago where a guy has turned the corner and maybe he doesn't have that the same snap as he used to have. So I love talking about the fights that are coming up. I love talking, getting excited about what's going to happen. But predicting fights is a, is a bit of a fool's game because all you can talk about is, uh, is what you saw in the past. And we haven't seen the last six months of these guys, not only their gym, their training, their mindset, but their lifestyle. So, so I prefer to look at 
elements that may come into play than, than look at predicting things because the, the more you learn, the, the harder it is to predict fights. Well, it's definitely a fool's game, but I am a fool, and I have a lot of fun predicting these fights. So, Patrick, I got to know, man, is the carpenter going to do what the carpenter does, or is Thiago Tavares going to be opportunistic and take the back of Clay Guida and choke him out? Um, I like Guida here, but I think it's a it's a really tight fight, and it's an interesting matchup. Like, um, because you know, I, I like Guida. Guida has made actual improvements to his game in the last couple of years. Like, they haven't necessarily been visible, and the results haven't necessarily been up there. But he's made but he's made improvements. You can see that he there are things that he's been working on. He's a better counter puncher than ever. He's got pop in his hands. He's always had some pop. He's got more pop than he used to. Um, he's he's more technical and me, and mindful with his movement. Like it's not movement for the sake of movement so much anymore. So it's uh, it's more directed. Um, but it, you know, if he's going to try and wrestle Tavares, Tavares has historically had very strong takedown defense. Tavares hasn't been taken down in a fight in the last five years. Um, now, with that said, he hasn't fought anybody who's got wrestling who can wrestle and chain wrestle as well as Clay Guida can. I kind of lean towards Guida, but not with any sort of uh, real confidence in that. I mean, there's a lot of potential variance in this fight, um, as, as Robin pointed out, based on uh, kind of kind of decline. It could uh, it, like both guys could come out looking like because Tavares is getting up there in age too and has had a, a lot of wear and tear on his body. Never had a great chin to start with. Um, there's a lot that could go wrong physically for both guys in this fight, and so that makes it that inherently adds a lot of uncertainty to the to the range of potential outcomes. Yeah, and that's why you you love to watch fights. Like the more you learn about fighting, the more unknowns there are. You know, the more that we see, even these conversations, we're kind of being left with, and, and that's good. That's what we're after. This could happen, and this guy does this sometimes, but this guy also does this. Because if we really could predict every fight, we wouldn't watch fights. We'd just sit around, we'd go to the betting window, we'd get super rich, we'd hang out with supermodels on a beach somewhere. We watch fights because of the beauty and the unpredictability of it. So, you know, and uh, the reason that sometimes we're wrong is because everything we know is different three months later sometimes, or it's different on the night, you know? Uh, Clay Guida's counterpunching, Patrick makes a great point. All good counterpunching for a guy like Clay Guida is, is throwing the last punch. Like, I mean, he's in the pocket, he's standing in there, and all he's really needed to do was throw the last punch, but he used to shoot the takedown. Instead, throw the left hook and then shoot the takedown. But it is, the more you talk about it, the more excited you get to watch the fights. And I think that's ultimately, you know, the whole point. Yeah, absolutely. And one day, you know, like you mentioned, we are going to be rich on the beach with a bunch of supermodels. So uh, don't, don't even look past that possibility, my man. And, you know, one more comment on the Tavares versus Guida fight is just the fact that, you know, obviously you can't predict everything. But historically speaking, every single time that Thiago Tavares fights a fellow grappler, he ends up getting knocked out. Now, obviously, Guida's never been known for his one-punch knockout power, but you know, he's as relentless as they come, and if he lands a good one on the chin of Tavares, it could be lights out. Now, next up, we got a lightweight matchup between Johnny Case and Jan Gabral. Now, this is a very intriguing matchup because in Johnny Case's case, <laughs> no pun intended, you know, he's got... No pun, in, uh, pun intended, <laughs> for sure. Pun 100% intended. You know, he... Uh, his jab is very pinpoint. He's got a very good front kick. He's got a good knee, and oftentimes he's been criticized for his takedown defense, but one thing I do like about him is that when he does get taken down, you know, he tries to get back up. Some guys, such as Jan Cabral, are very content to lay on their backs, you know, as 
they, they think it's a jujitsu tournament, but this is not a jujitsu tournament, my friends. You're getting hit in the face, and you know Johnny Case, if he does get taken down, he's gonna try to get back up. But Jan Cabral isn't the kind of guy like Gilbert Burns, where you know he is a jujitsu champion with a blast double. Jan Cabral is the kind of guy that will pull guard. Now, Patrick, do you think he's gonna be able to get Johnny Case to the ground and submit him, or will Johnny Case just be too uh, too pinpoint and too accurate for him? Um, I think that this is this is Case's fight to lose. Um, I think. His takedown defense has been questionable in the past, but it's gotten it's gotten substantially better since he started working with better camps, since he moved to Alliance, and now now if memory serves, he's working with Power MMA in Arizona. Um, he's made real progress on his defensive wrestling game, and he's made real progress as a striker too. Like he, like Johnny Case's hands are are mean. He throws he throws mean punching combinations. He throws a lot of them. He throws real good volume. Um, and Cabral, it, well, Cabral isn't helpless elsewhere, but really he's but he's a grappler. Like that's that's basically his game. I mean, he's got a he's got a decent uh, he's got a decent rear hand straight that he throws from both stances. He's got good uh, he's got decent trips and throws in the clinch. But really, he's a grappler. That's that's his game. Um, and if Cabral can't get him down, then it's going to be a long night for him. And I think Case probably finishes him on the feet. Um, he's just Case is just worlds beyond Cabral as a striker, unless things have drastically changed since his last outing. He's also got much better cardio, much better work rate. Go ahead, Robin. Uh, I don't know. Um, it's a hard one to say because you can see all the different scenarios playing out. But what I hope happens is that it does go to the ground a bit because there is this sort of flavor and this feeling and this sort of debate amongst people uh, who do sports jiu-jitsu and MMA fighters who, I mean, there's a, a world of MMA fighters and a, and a sort of rumbling in people who fight mixed martial arts that sports jiu-jitsu has a lot in common with all other traditional martial arts. It's gone that direction. Baron Bolo and all of these really cool things that happen in sports jiu-jitsu exist in a world where there are no, there is no punching. You know, Just like Taekwondo exists in a world where we agree to fight at reins with the hooks of our feet. And like Kung Fu exists in a world where you're going to do Kung Fu. You know what I mean? And in sports jiu-jitsu, and I mean, uh, Cabral is a Nova You Now fighter who fights out of there, and he's not a sports jiu-jitsu guy, but he has those elements. He will play guard. He believes in his submissions, and uh, submissions are a beautiful and wonderful thing. But there is this world of, of people who are like, you remove punching, and you allow somebody to explore all the beautiful martial arts aspects that can develop without punching, and all of a sudden you go really, really far from reality. And that's what I want to see play out in this. If we get to the ground and you've got a guy whose instincts are very true, the beauty of jujitsu oriented, and you've got another guy who's kind of an ornery prick with long arms who's like, oh, you're going to, going to try to lock this part of my body up? Look, I have a free hand. I'll show you how I break out of that. I love that dynamic. I love seeing that play out in a fight. And the reason this fight is fun for me is because if it goes to the ground or if it gets into those open guard scenarios – or those sort of in-between position scenarios. You got a guy in Johnny Case who's got that ornery, you know, that ornery motherfucker kind of mentality. Who's like, if I can pressure you with a hip and a shoulder and something else and have a hand free, you can't do anything to me. And that's what I'm hoping plays out, regardless of how this goes. But I think you know what we're saying here is there's a lot of really cool matchups on this card that do have, and I hate to, to ever bring this up, the idea of styles make fights and grappler versus wrestler or wrestler versus a striker. But when, every time they put on cards in Brazil, you do see that. 
And this is one of those. But I hope it gets into that open guard area where the American, you know, MMA style meets that I will submit you vibe. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out because like you guys previously mentioned, if it does stay standing, you know, nine times out of ten, Johnny Case is going to take him to school. But if it goes to the ground, things can get very, very interesting. Now, next up, we got a lightweight matchup between Abel Trujillo and Glayson Tebow. Now, this is a very interesting bout because, you know, a lot of people often criticize Trujillo for having a very limited gas tank. But if you watch Tebow's fight, it's not like he's uh, pushing strong in the second or third round either. You know, both these guys are... They're so heavily muscular, like Joe Rogan likes to talk about. You know, that body type might not be the best for having long-standing cardio. Now, before we break down the matchup, do you guys agree with that, Robin? I I have a hard time disagreeing with anything Joe Rogan says. One, um, you know, I like doing podcasts now, uh, but I didn't even know what podcasts were. I'm ever did in my life was losing your virginity to a porn star you know what I mean and uh, and Joe and Joe is a very good friend and I do some work for the UFC now and Joe was the one who called Dana and said you need to get this guy I believe in him and, and so I am almost biased for almost anything Joe says just because I think he's such a special human being having said that I do disagree with him on that and uh, I told him that it's uh, the, the thing with and he says it about Tyron Woodley a lot Mm -hmm. And uh, and Tyron Woodley's thinking is not he's so muscled that this happens. Tyron Woodley fights, and, and it's exactly, well, it's not exactly the same with Gleason Tebow. But, but some guys will fight in this concept of sprint, recover, sprint, recover, sprint, recover. And you train in that concept. You cannot sprint for five minutes of a fight you can't sprint for one minute of a fight because you need almost a hundred percent recovery of that but uh some of these muscled guys will sprint and and hold you against the fence or hold a position and recover and sprint and recover and try to burn you out that way it's anaerobic it's a type of anaerobic you know uh, capacity that they do but uh so i don't agree with that body type thing and like i said i mean you can ask me a thousand things that Joe says, and I'll agree with 998 of them, uh, including the fact that marijuana is good for people. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, Gleason Tebow is an interesting one because he will try to push you to a state of hypoxia. So he basically, the reason that he wins fights is because he creates an environment in both of your bodies where it sucks to do anything. Okay, so take, fill your backpack with, with rocks and sprint up the stairs. And by the time you get to the top, run back down and do it again, and you're done. Only thing is, now you got to fight Gleason Tebow. And he creates that environment, and it's in him too. He forces the fight, so you're both in this state of hypoxia. The only thing is, he does better in that environment. So he makes you both suffer, and he makes you both fight suffering, and most times he will handle the suffering better than you. And it's not a technical thing. It's a uh, philosophical thing and a biochemical thing, and that's how Gleason Tebow has made a great career and gets paid a lot of money and gets the highest level of Reebok shit and all of that kind of stuff is he just has this really weird physiological way of fighting. Yeah, Gleason Tebow absolutely knows how to win a fight, but April Trujillo, man, he's that next generation, and their chances are that if he connects on the chin of Tebow, he could put him out. Now, Pat, what's your perspective on the body type talk, and what's your perspective on the fight itself? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the body type stuff is, is pretty overblown. Like, you look at a guy like Tim Kennedy, who is heavily muscled by, by absolutely any standard, and the dude just doesn't get tired ever. Like, there's... Or, Brian I, or I'm sorry? Brian Dan is fighting yeah. the same thing. Yeah, Brian's it, like I think that it's it's a way overblown type of thing, and and I think in general, it's way too easy to get hung up on whether guys look tired and to lose sight of what it is that they're actually doing. So like, um, I'll give you I'll give you a, a totally random example of this, but like Clint Hester, right? So whoever the commentator is tends to com uh, tends to tends to mention, well, Hester looks tired, but they miss the fact that he's still doing stuff. Justin Gagey, same deal. Justin Gagey starts to look tired. But you look at his output, look at how many strikes he's actually throwing, look at what they're doing, and sure, he may look tired, but he is, he's not fighting any less effectively, you know? Um, so I think, I think it's, like, I try to pay attention to what guys are, are doing rather than, rather than what it looks, rather than what it necessarily looks like. Um, but as far as this fight goes, it's interesting because Trujillo, while he's got a wrestling background, and while he shoots, he's a beautiful offensive wrestler. He's got a great blast double. He finishes, he finishes really cleanly. Uh, he's got a really nice technical finish to his takedowns. He is not at all a good defensive wrestler. Um, it's kind of a paradox, right? That he's that his takedowns are that good, and he really, really struggles to defend takedowns uh, to to defend takedowns. So that's kind of the basic dynamic. If this stays standing, um, you know, Tibau is probably going to lose the fight because Trujillo hits harder and because Tibau's chin has been cracked a few times in the last few years. Um, it speaks to uh, that's basically the dynamic of it. Um, neither guy has neither guy has particularly good cardio. I think Glayson Tibau in like the last seven years has won exactly one third round on a judge's scorecard. Like that's which is yeah. pretty amazing. The okay. idea. Uh, sorry to interrupt. That idea of Gleason Tibau making you both exhausted. If you look at, at how guys have fought like that, it goes all the way back to Kevin Randleman. Mm -hmm. That idea that I'm just going to go ape shit on you, and in the end, I need to win two of these fights, and we're both going to be dead at the end. That mm -hmm. is not a new thing or not unique to, to Gleason Tebow. But he wins two rounds with that concept. So it's, he's, an inter he's a very, very interesting one for me. And if you look, Michael Johnson – Knocked him out, right? Michael Johnson knocked him out coming in. If you're the guy who wants to wear a guy out, if you're, if you're Kevin Randleman or Gleason Tebow, you got to get on a guy and make him carry you because you're not winning it on technique. You're winning it on sort of a, a, a strength and conditioning concept that you've and a, and a physiological concept that you've made work. So he, uh, he needs to get on you. And when he's getting on you, if you can strike backing up, you can hurt him. And what do we have in common here? Michael Johnson was able to do that. He is a Henry Hooft guy. And lo and behold, Abel Trujillo at different times has also trained with Henry Hooft. So Henry at least knows the idea. And Henry's a genius. So, so Tebow, or, uh, Trujillo definitely has you know, an idea of how to do it. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And I really do like the coaching style of Henry Hoof. Now, next up, oh, go ahead. So good. So, so good, man. His his understanding, all the top guys right now, so for so long it was like the uh, pressure fighters are winning, right? When you win through pressure. And that's still the case, 155 champion, pound champion and the heavyweight champion. Their coach has built pressure fighters. So what do you have to do? You have to either counter the pressure fighter or you have to find a way to beat the pressure fighter. And guys are winning fights backing up and delivering with power as guys come forward. You saw it from even Hendo against uh, Tim Boach. Uh, you saw, you've seen it twice from OSP. Guys are finding ways to do that 
And Henry is one of the guys who knows how to do that. Uh, he's done it with Anthony Johnson. He's done it with Michael Johnson. And that's what he's going to try to do with Abel. Well, it's going to be interesting because, you know, Abel oftentimes does walk guys down. He doesn't, you know, tend to hang back. You, you know, you did mention that OSP example. I know you're talking about OSP versus Cummins. When Cummins rushed him and OSP cracked him and put him down, you know, Abel doesn't. OSP against Shogun, too. Open door, yep. left hook. Yep, yep. Or right hook, I forget. But but same idea. And that, and Duke is really good at that, too. Anthony Pettis, a lot of these guys. That idea right now is in the ether. So if you're going to try to find a way to beat this big, muscled-up Brazilian with, like, 750 UFC fights and, like, who makes $900 million in Reebok money, you beat him while trying to back up. For sure. And let's say, hypothetically, that this does go past the first round. Who do you favor to win, Pat? Um, I lean very slightly toward T-Bow, but I think it's a, I think it's essentially a coin flip. Like, there, there are basically two true... There are basically three outcomes here. Like, either Trujillo knocks him out, um, or, uh, or T-Bow manages to kind of grind him out for a decision, or there's a chance that uh, Trujillo has not been the world's most, uh, like, has not paid the world's most attention to what he's doing on the mat when he gets there. So if T-Bow takes him down and Trujillo tries to scramble, he could get to his back in a scramble and work a, a rear naked choke. I mean, I think, uh, I think T-Bow wins a decision, but I, I wouldn't, like, bet money on that, you know? Yeah, and Robin, hypothetically speaking, if it goes past the first round, who do you favor to be the fresher guy? I mean, uh, Patrick made, made a, a nice point about Gleason T-Bow rarely winning a third round, but winning more fights than he lost when he, when he lost mm -hmm. those third rounds. So, I mean, the guy grinds it out. And Trujillo, uh, I, I, this fight is going to be fun. If there's a third round, it will not be one where that is going to uh, excite people based on sizzle. It's going to excite people based on people who kind of uh, either grew up wrestling or grew up really kind of, or like in any way have run any kind of endurance sport where they're looking going, God, these guys are suffering right now. And as they're suffering, they're fighting their hearts out. And that's what kind of third round it'll be, uh, in my opinion. But uh, but it, it'll be a fun one. It definitely will. It's also, you know, uh, you can't avoid talking about the fact that uh, the PED testing has changed this year. That's going to come up no matter what by the time we get to the main event. So uh, uh, will both of these guys, and, you know, you can't accuse anybody of anything, but this type of body shape is not a natural thing that happens when you keep increasing your output, your training output for six, eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks accelerating towards a goal, it's not as natural. The, the reason you don't see that many guys who are muscled this way is it's sort of an unnatural thing. Some are genetic, some are, you know, use whatever they use, but it'll be interesting if both of these guys look the same in the drug testing era, you'll go, wow, it is really cool to see that these guys are just the genetic makeup of guys who are thick like this, uh, who are fighters, because that's not the natural fighter body type. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. I couldn't say it better myself, but, you know, interestingly enough, I did watch the, you know, the pre-fight stare down, and both of these guys, they look just as ripped as they ever have. You know, neither of them looks deflated, so, you know, my uh, my suspicions aren't really that high, but we're going to have to pay close attention 
and see exactly what happens on fight night and see how they look in their subsequent fights because, you know, there have been a couple guys, I don't want to name any names, but you guys probably know who I'm talking about, you know, a guy that used to be super explosive, ripped out of his mind, then he goes in there and, man, he's looking, uh, he's got a love handles and not looking like the same guy at all. So we're, you guys can expect that kind of thing to occur. Oh, there's some of that. Is the guy you're talking about, does his name rhyme with Eric Silva? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, there is some of that, and, and it's hard. It, it, that's a whole other conversation, but it is hard to judge guys who grew up in an era where, you know, the environment that you were in, you thought there was a pretty good chance that guy who was stepping in a cage to try to do your brain damage for $8,000 probably was on PEDs. I think a lot of us might have to consider a conversation with a doctor if we believe that, no matter how honest and honorable you are. So you, I truly don't think you can judge people who came along in that era, but in this era, now guys who, who pop, when you're pretty sure, when you have a really good sense of, of justice that the other guy is clean, if you pop now, I think it's open season on judgment if you like. Yeah, for sure. And you know, also not to mention that the cultures are different, you know? In some places, such as Brazil, you know, I hear that it's over the counter over there and that it's no big deal. Because over here, we view it like, dude, you know, this guy's juiced and this and that. But over there, it's like, hey, no big deal. Let me get a little, right? But South America, it's not only over the counter, it's cheaper than a tub of protein powder. So you go and you get DECA, some bodybuilding or like, you know, Diana Ball or whatever these bodybuilding ones are. They are cheaper than a tub of protein powder. And never mind fighting. You know, just the guys on the beach, if it's uh, that available and that cheap, just to be, you know, it, uh, it, um, in play against pretty women, you have to consider it. So it's a different culture and you shouldn't judge, you know. But now that the playing field has been evened and there's a really powerful testing and really good scientific testing, if guys pop now, they pop because they are cheaters, not because they felt the sense of necessity like they may have five and seven and eight and 15 years ago. And not because they got uh, sex pills from their buddy Marcos from Thailand, right? Yeah. Poor guy. Poor Anderson Silva. Just couldn't get a boner, you know? Must be terrible to be, like, such a rich, famous, successful, talented, super athlete and not be able to satisfy your wife. I mean, the poor guy. I, I really feel for him. Well, whether that's true or not is a discussion for another time. Because next not up, true. we got to talk about Corey Anderson versus Fabio Maldonado, you know? A lot of people like to talk about Fabio Maldonado's boxing, but I mean, I do think it is a little bit overrated. I'm going to explain why right now. When he has a stationary target in front of him, that's when he starts to tee off. You know, you start to block high, he'll mix it up to the body, he'll set you up with a nice uppercut. But when he's got a fresh opponent in front of him, you know, he often gets taken down at will, he gets outpointed. And when you talk about Corey Anderson, I mean, his nickname says it all. This guy is beasting 25-8, you know, he's working around the clock. His coach is Mark Henry, who produced, you know... Uh, the former UFC lightweight champion, Frankie Edgar. That's the kind of guy that Corey Anderson's working with. You know his work ethic is through the roof. And, you know, a lot of people like to point to, oh, but he lost to Jean Vellante. Yeah, but that was a very good learning experience for him. Oftentimes, with these undefeated prospects, they need that first roadblock to, you know, make the proper adjustments, to really take things to that next level. And I think that's exactly what happened when he lost to Jean Vellante because he goes in there against Jan Blankovic, and that was a pick on paper, and he absolutely owned him. I think he got a couple 30-25, so, man, he took him to school. But what do you think he's going to do to Fabio Maldonado, Pat? 
Um, I think it's going to look a lot like that Blackowitz fight, except maybe uh, maybe even a little more emphatic. Um, Anderson is as close as the light heavyweight division has to a kind of a blue chip up and coming prospect. It's a thin division. Um, it's an aging division. Um, there are not a lot. Uh, there's not a lot of young talent in there. But Anderson qualifies. He's um, he. I've been really impressed with how quickly his striking repertoire has come along. Um, and his willingness to, and ability to throw combinations. That's like, a lot of the time, that's what you see young kind of converted wrestlers struggle with, is the ability to string strikes together into some sort of coherent package and, to a, and into a larger strategic package. Um, Anderson has not struggled with that at all. He, like, he's come along really quickly. I think he can keep up with Maldonado on the feet. Um, he's not going to get worn out by Maldonado like, like, most guys, uh, like most guys do. That's really what Maldonado is. He's kind, of a, he's kind of a pressuring swarmer, and he relies on his durability and his cardio to see him through. Um, that's not going to get him through against Anderson. Anderson's going to work him on the feet a little bit, but eventually he's going to win the fight from top position. Go ahead. Corey Anderson's going to beast this guy 26-9. Like, or, 20, or 27, 10, or 28, 11. Like, he's going to beast the shit out of him. And uh, uh, Mark Henry, man, like, the dude is so good. you got to go back. So we know how good Frankie Edgar is. Pat, where are you going? You going to, you going to get beers? i got to go get my charger. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's not as fun. No, no uh, Although it's, it's important. You still need it. Um, Mark Henry, uh, you, you look back. Okay, Frankie Edgar, of course is, uh, you know, a workhorse and super driven. And there's so much that goes into, you know, sometimes we'll look and we'll go, this guy's very good at this. Well, how did he get good at that? Like, what was it? Was it repetition? Was it commitment? Was it good coaching? It's usually all of those things. And so Frankie obviously had all of those things. But Henry, man, he took him. You have to look back at Sean Shirk, the Sean Shirk fight. Before that, he was a, a really good wrestler. And then that night... It's like, where the fuck did this guy come from? You know, like landing combinations on the entry uh, or, or moves his head on the entry, steps in, moving his feet and head simultaneously, usually with a strike, lands in the pocket while slipping strikes, lands something on the exit, moves his head and pivots out. And it's like, what the fuck happened here? Like, where did this guy come from? And Mark Henry turned, that, turned him into that in like four months. And I talked to Mark Henry about it, and I talked to Frankie about it a little bit. And Frankie just credits him like crazy. And, and when you talk to Mark Henry, like a lot of really good boxing coaches who get like a really good athlete, you know, sometimes these great boxing coaches require 20 hours a week to make you a really good boxer. But the guys who understand MMA understand how to do it in five hours a week or six hours a week or seven hours a week, which is all the MMA fighters have to kind of compile that knowledge because they're doing all these other things. And Mark Henry is one of those guys. And Corey Anderson is going to beat up Maldonado. And, uh, you know, the fight itself, thats I find that interesting. But it raises, you know, that thing that bothers some of us. Uh, when Every time I show up at, a, at an MMA event to commentate it at one of the smaller shows or when I used to fight, you get there. And uh, you're really excited. It's like, oh, man, there's going to be so much great stuff happening. We're going to see brilliance and martial arts and uh, so much excitement. And then the ambulance comes in. And they, they bring it in, and the two guys come back, and they, they carry their stretcher. And, and you're always reminded, like, oh, yeah, shit. You know, these guys really are, you know, giving us something special. Like, this is not gymnastics or this is not a rock concert. These guys, it's going to affect their lives. And, and when I was in Montreal – and I spoke with Fabio Maldonado, 
uh, I let him know in the interview how much people appreciate his heart and what he shows and, and his courage and, and his fearlessness. And, and it really is something special. And it's made, and when I asked him about it, he thanked me and he thanked anybody who, who appreciates that in him. And he said, it's given him a great life and he's provided money for his family. And when he grew up watching fighting, his dream was not to be the best fighter, but be the fighter with the most heart. And that's, a, these things are very beautiful, but he also slurs his speech. And he also, you know, you, you can feel the effects of that. And, uh, you know, when you see these kind of fights sometimes, and you see a, a young, stud, talented stud like Corey Anderson, you know that Maldonado has this beautiful opportunity in front of all his countrymen in this cage to go in and show his heart one more time, but you're scared for him, you know? I am. I, I really am. And and uh, it's his right to do it, and I and as somebody who loves fighting, and and loves competing and whatever you and know that lots of people uh, enjoy competing you still feel scared for him and, and i feel scared for him in this fight yeah well i do admire fabio maldonado's heart obviously i mean you have to but one thing that i also think is that he is on the decline you know his past couple performances haven't been the best and just to backtrack a little bit, we were talking about Frankie Edgar. So before we get into Gilbert Burns versus Rashid Magomedov, I want to ask you guys something. Frankie Edgar is fighting Chad Mendes, right? We know Mark Henry's a genius. We know Frankie Edgar's a genius. We know they're both workhorses. Now, if Chad Mendes doesn't knock out Frankie Edgar, is Frankie Edgar going to do what Frankie Edgar does, Robin? Yeah, Frankie Edgar's going to win that fight. And... Uh... Yeah, he's going to win that fight, and he's going to be a little bit better everywhere. I mean, Chad Mendes is a great fighter, and anytime Chad Mendes fights, it's really cool. And he mixes those things up, that modern American 145-pound style, you know, just the same way that um, when you see a quarterback fake that, that throw, and you see the defense run back, and they, they run and then as they're running, it opens it up and he hands it off and the guy can run up the middle or he fakes the handoff and you see the defense come running in and then he throws it because the defense isn't in place. That's all these guys are doing. They, they go to that takedown and as you respond, Mendez throws that uppercut and he's really good at it. But fucking Frankie Edgar invented that at this level. You know, he didn't invent the, the strategy, but he invented the execution and he has so many other ways to do it. And you're never going to surprise him with that. And he's going to be in better shape. He still has that. He has that Weidman-like desire to win. And Chad Mendez just made a whole lot of money in a loss. And somewhere in the back of his mind, that idea that hey, I can make another whole lot of money. And uh, I've really enjoyed this thing. I grew up wrestling. I mean, I'm not speaking for him. I, I don't know him, but those types of things. I just. I, I would be I would be as surprised as I would by any kind of um, unexpected outcome as I would be if Chad Mendez beat Frankie Edgar. I, and that's coming from a guy who loves watching Chad Mendez fight and is a big supporter and a big fan of his. But I, I can't imagine him winning that fight. Yeah, I mean, I love watching Chad Mendez fight too. But listen, I don't like to say, oh, this guy's my favorite fighter. But I mean, how can you not consider Frankie Edgar one of your favorite fighters? I mean, the guy's heart is just... It's astronomical. It's ridiculous. And, you know, one other thing I like to 
I want to comment on is just the fact that Mark Henry and Frankie Edgar, their relationship, it's almost like a video game, you know? Mark Henry, is, you know, he's got that controller, and Frankie's the character in the video game, and Mark Henry, he'll scream stuff out like, Jersey, Jersey, like they have their own code names when they're out there, and they fuck with their opponents so hard, so, now Pat, if he avoids that knockout by Mendez, is Frankie going to do what Frankie does? Um... If Mendez were still working with Dwayne Ludwig, because I think outside of TJ Dillashaw, nobody at Team Alpha Male benefited more from Ludwig's tutelage than than Mendez did. Um, I, I would I would pick Mendez. Um, why? Simply because he uh, Frankie Edgar isn't going to take him down. You cannot take down Chad Mendez. He's the I think he's the best defensive wrestler uh, in MMA, including Jose Aldo. Um, and I think that outside of Frankie. Like kind of la- just outlanding him, just landing more volume. I don't see that how Edgar would win that fight. Um, but given current circumstances and what's going on at Team Alpha Male, um, I would take I would take Frankie to win that fight by a small margin. The the danger of the knockout though is is real. Mendez is a brutal puncher. Um, Frankie has always been hittable. Frankie's getting older. You can't take those same kinds of shots as you age. Yeah, Frank, I don't know, man. Frankie's always been hittable as going back to Gray Maynard and stuff. Like, Frankie now is not going to get hit. Also, I'll, I'm willing to lay right now, and I'm not a betting guy, but I'm willing to, to, to throw, let's say, something like fair, like $20, that that Frankie will take Mendez down. I will, I will take that bet. Uh, yeah. I will absolutely take that bet. Let's uh, throw but, a six pack in it. Twenty in yeah. the six pack. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I like Frankie a lot. I say this as a fan of his game. It's just that age is encroaching, and Chad Mendes can put anybody, except for apparently Conor McGregor, who just his chin is not made of like some substance known to man. Like Chad Mendes can put anybody to sleep, um, and I think that that's an increasing danger for Frankie. Uh, but with that said, I mean, I, I like Frankie here. I, I'm not like. I think there's a real chance that it turns out to be a not great fight as Mendez kind of gets confused by the movement and he just kind of gets outstruck for, for four out of five rounds. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I, I, I lean towards Frankie with a whole bunch of caveats. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and that's fair because there's a lot going on in that fight. But the reason I say that Frankie will take him down is because he will – Google up his brain. He will overload his CPU in ways that suddenly he'll be able to do it. But, I mean, that goes outside of what I said earlier, where it's very hard to truly predict. You can predict ideas. You can you can excite people's ideas. You can get people to go, yeah, that's what I think. But in the end, fights are fights. And, and the fun is is dancing around them. But predict if you could really predict... I mean, although having said that, I was just about to say we would just bet on fights and get rich. But yeah. I did bet on fights for a little bit at Fight Network, and I made $1,000 on my $50 um, money. I started, and I bet $2 here and $5 there. But I cashed out because I was like, it changes my perspective. And perspective is analysis. Your, your analysis is your perspective. Uh, and if you're sitting there going, oh, my God, I said two and a half. It's going to go over two and a half. And you're, like, upset or freaked out. or Oh, no, he's losing. You're not watching fights for the same reason, for the same beauty and technique as you're watching fights. But, but uh, I don't know. Um, I love talking about fights in advance. But, uh, and and I, I've never tracked it. But some people can track their 
their predictions, and they can be 65, 68%. So, I mean, there's something to it. Some people can do it, but other people also do it with numbers. You know, uh, numbers really tell a big story in baseball, and they tell a big story sometimes in fighting, too. Yeah, for sure. And I'm one of those guys that likes to predict, and I'm up for the year. What can I say, my man? So, next up, we got to fight. No, hold on. Sorry to interrupt. Start start tracking your predictions, and let's see. Like, you know, predict 100 fights, and if you're at even 56 out of 100, then you're on something. You know, if you predict 1,000 fights and you're at 590 or 610, then you're on to something. It's worth tracking it. Just like when you go and you train or you work on anything, tracking the metrics shows you the evidence of what you're doing. And you can use that evidence to inform how you improve and how you study and how you refocus. So you should try to track it. Uh, predicting is a cool thing. I'm, I'm not anti-predicting. In fact, I love it. I just, the, the more I learn, the less confident I am in my predictions. And I love that. But you, if you're doing it and you love doing it and it's something you really want to explore, or you want to keep building on, track it and use that tracking to keep improving that skill. Oh, yeah, for sure. I 100% track it because, I mean, this is a long-term game. And like you mentioned, it's something I enjoy. It's something I love. You know, I love training. I love watching the fights. And I love talking about the fights and, you know, thinking about who's going to win, all the possibilities. Everything we're doing right here, right now, live on Half the Battle is something I genuinely enjoy. So, you know, I appreciate you telling me that. And, you know, I was already tracking my plays, but just the fact that, you know, you're, uh, re, uh, you know, just, just telling me to do the right thing, I appreciate that, my man, because that is exactly what I'm doing. Now, next up, we got right. Gilbert Burns versus Rashid Magomedov. Now, I mentioned off there, my buddy jo uh, John Gooden, you know, he pronounces it Rashid Magomedov. And, you know, when you see Magomedov strike, man, his counter striking is so clean. I love his crisp straight punches and man if he throws a kick in there too you know he'll kick you right in that liver right in that chin he'll put you down now the thing with Gilbert Burns like we were mentioning earlier with Ian Cabral you know Cabral's the kind of jiu-jitsu player that'll pull guard Gilbert Burns has a blast double and that's very interesting because a lot of these jiu-jitsu guys they don't have the the wrestling to get it to the ground now I'm not saying that Gilbert Burns is a D1 wrestler but MMA wrestling and pure wrestling are two different things and this guy's able to implement that MMA wrestling, you know, when he fights inside the octagon. But that fight with Alex Cowboy, it showed me something very telling about Gilbert Burns. And that's the fact that this guy, I'm not convinced he takes the best punch, and I'm not convinced that he, uh, you know, no one likes getting hit. But, I, but with Gilbert Burns, you know, he takes an exception to not liking getting hit. And if Rashid starts uh, teeing off on his chin, it is not going to be a good night. For Gilbert Torino Burns. Now, Pat, you're a striking aficionado. What do you think about Rashid Magomedov? Because, I mean, this kid is such a good prospect, and I love watching him strike. Yeah, he's a really natural, organic striker with his approach. Like, you can see his thought process as he works. You can see him seeing, uh, you, you can see him finding the openings, seeing, uh, like, gauging his opponent's reactions, working the feints. Um, working his shots around through under his opponent's guard. Uh, it's a really rare gift. Also, he's an excellent counterpuncher, a really, really natural, clean counterpuncher. He's got an array of counters that he uses. He even throws counter kicks, um, like, say, like kicks the same time counters, which is a rare skill set in MMA. You don't, like, you don't see that very often. Um, with Burns, I like Burns a lot as a prospect. With his striking, what you see, I think, is he hasn't been doing it for that long. Right? He's only been fighting as a professional for like three years. Um, and in that time, 
he looks like he's almost fooled us into thinking that he's a better striker than he is because what he does looks right. He's such a good athlete, and he's so well-trained by Henry Hoof that it looks technical. It looks like he has a better idea of what he's doing, I think, than he actually does. Um, and this was true of Corey Anderson, too. I think that Corey Anderson, similar thing against John Volante. Um, with that said, I think that Magomedov just has such a, just such a vastly broader uh, striking repertoire to, uh, to draw from here. Um, I think he's. I think he's going to be able to read Burns's reactions, which are relatively predictable. Even though Burns is a, is an excellent wrestler, um, I think that Magomedov's takedown defense is something really special. He's stuffed. Uh, he, he stuffed. I want. I think uh, ten of eleven attempted takedowns on him in the UFC. Um, he's a really excellent defensive wrestler. He's a well-rounded fighter. He's got. He's. Uh, I think he's just got it going on. I think he's got a little more to work with than Burns does here. Who's still learning everything. Who's still learning the game. Yeah, and another thing I like about Rashid Magomedov is he's got that championship heart. If you go back and watch that fight with Tony Martin, Tony had him in a deep armbar, and you can see the grimace on Rashid's face, but he didn't tap, he didn't verbally submit, he got out of it, and then he went on to dominate the fight. Now, if Gilbert Dorino Burns gets him in that same armbar, chances are he's going to break his arm, but the good news is... Rashid Magomedov's not going to quit. He's not going to look for a way out. So for that reason, I am favoring him to get the victory here. Now, Robin, what's your perspective on Rashid Magomedov versus Gilbert Dorinho Burns? Oh, this is my favorite one. <laughs> this is the one I'm super pumped for. Um, yeah, it's it's really fun. Uh, I like, like sometimes I know um, Joe Self is a good dude, and he's very smart. He's very funny, and he's very interesting. He's like super... Um, uh, science oriented, like facts and uh, not even stats, like evidence. And uh, he looks for weird things. And sometimes, and just as I'm about to say this, I have to preface it with sometimes these fights are made entirely like, oh shit, I've got like eight spreadsheets open and I just need to put 155 pounder somewhere. And they make tons of fights that way. But this one feels like he put them together because you talked about Maga Madoff's heart, Burns. Took a shit kicking from Cowboy Oliveira, a shit kicking before he caught that beautiful submission, and so he showed heart against striking, right? So I think that's a, a part of what's going on. This one is basically for me why I like it so much is um, Burns is gonna get punched in the face and he's gonna get kicked in the body. It's gonna happen. Like he's totally gonna get beat up, and uh, we've seen him handle that before. Can he, in the middle of getting beat up, just sort of flip that switch, like hit the red button and drive, you know? Because takedown defense is great, and really good takedown defense is this elite skill. But if you're leaning into a left hook or if you're really committed to a strike, takedowns can be a lot easier. You know, if you're on one leg, there's a lot of times that takedowns are a lot easier. So... Uh, Burns is going to get ripped in the face, ripped in the body, and can he kind of flip the red button and shoot the double and just take that out of the equation? Like, can he make be like, oh, shit, I'm getting shit kicked here. I need this not to happen, so I need to make this happen on the ground, so I'm going to hit turbo and make that happen. If he can do that and put it on the ground, it's a whole different fight. If he cannot, he gets beat up and he gets finished, and uh, Magomedov is the guy everybody's talking about Monday morning. If he does take him down, he either finishes him, which is difficult and unlikely, and then he has to do it again in round two. So it, it, this fight plays out really for me that simply. Oh, my God, he's beating the shit out of me. 
I need to panic into a double. Can I get the double? Okay, I got the double. Great, I'm going to try to submit him. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, fuck, we got to do that again. Yeah. He's beating the shit out of me. Uh, does he finish me? Oh, shit, I hit the panic button, and I drill the panicked. I'm a super elite athlete who drives all the way through, interrupts his combination, puts him on his back, and finish him the second time. That's It's an urgent fight, and that's why it's fun, and that's why it's my favorite fight on the thing. Yeah, Gilbert, in my opinion, like you mentioned, I do think he's going to be desperate for that takedown. And one thing I forgot to mention about Rashid Magomedov is after that Tony Martin fight, you know, he went to ATT. So now, you know, he's working with a world-class coaching staff, and he's really taking his game to that next level. And that's exactly what we saw when he fought Elias Silverio. So I think that, you know, with that victory behind him, he's going to make even more adjustments, take things to that next level, evolve, and I think he's going to go out there and just put on a clinic against Gilbert Burns. And it's going to be a very eye-opening fight for a lot of people that don't know about these guys. Now, next up, yeah. Alex. One of these go ahead. on Monday, one of these guys is somebody we're going to be talking about. That's for sure. 100%. I, I couldn't agree, man. I couldn't agree more myself. Now, next up, we got Alex Cowboy versus Piotr Hallman. Now, this is a very, very interesting fight because we were just talking about that Alex Cowboy versus Doreen Ho Burns fight where, you know, Alex is doing his thing for the first two rounds. Then that third round, you know, he gets taken down and subsequently gets subbed with the armbar. Now, with Piotr Hallman, what he looks to do is, you know, he gets his ass kicked that first round, but he's a very tough guy. That second, that third round, he starts to come on strong. Now, he doesn't have the Brazilian jiu-jitsu credentials of a Gilbert Burns, so I don't think he's going to take down, you know, Alex Cowboy and submit him with an armbar or anything like that. But if Alex Cowboy does start to slow down a little bit, that's when Piotr Hallman can start to put it on. That's when he can slowly chip away. But we mentioned earlier on the show that, you know, with the new PED testing and, you know, the new things going on, guys might look a little bit different. And, you know, Piotr Hallman, he did test positive after the T-Bow fight. And, you know, he denied it. So who knows if he really took it or not. But one thing I can say is that when I saw him in that pre-fight stare down, dude, he is not looking the same at all. He was definitely looking a little deflated. So we're going to have to see how that translates on fight night. Now, what's your opinion, Pat? I think this is a really interesting fight, and if we see the same Piotr Hallman that we've seen in, in his last few outings, um, then I think he's actually got a better chance than the betting odds would indicate. Uh, Oliveira's coming in at about a, as about a 2-1 to one favorite here. Um, I've always been a fan of Piotr Hallman. I like his game a lot. Um, I think he's a, he's a talented guy. I like his durability. I like his cardio. I like his work rate. He's constantly pushing forward. He's constantly working. He's a smart fighter. I like the decisions that he makes in fights. Um, I think he was just coming on in his last fight against Magomed Mustafaev when Mustafaev uh, uh, not, uh, just kind of notched his face open with a couple of elbows and, and got the doctor stoppage. Um, but I like how relentless he is. And I think that if you want to beat Alex Oliveira, that's what you need to do. You need to stay on him. Um, you see what happens when you give Oliveira too much space. He, he lights you up with big shots. He lights you up with those, kind of, with those leaping in combinations. Um, when, you let, uh, when you let Oliveira work takedowns on you, he's not like the world's most technical wrestler, but he is real big, he's real strong, he's got great leverage. Um, he's not efficient, but he is effective with his takedowns. And, uh, and like, like kind of a, like a not-as-technical version of Chaz Skelly, like Ol Oliveira is not a real well-rounded grappler, but he does have a great move to the back. And so when he takes you down, he wants to let you move under him, and then once you start to move, once you expose yourself, then he's going to try and move to your back. That's really his game on the mat. Uh, it's a good game. It's an interesting game. It works for him. Um, but he's at his best on the feet. I think that 
you know, the more likely scenario is that he kind of sticks and moves and keeps the, it keeps it moving. He's a much better athlete. He's much faster. Uh, he hits much harder than Holman does. I see Holman's path to victory, but it just seems more likely that, that Oliveira can kind of keep it at range and win it that way. Yeah, and you mentioned the Mustafaya fight, and one thing I got to say is that, you know, you can make an argument that Piotr Holman's gotten the short end of the stick two fights in a row. You know, obviously the split decision against Glayson Tebow, some people thought it could have gone Holman's way. And then the Mustafaya fight, you know, he was starting to do what Piotr Holman does, which is, you know, lose the first round and then pick it up strong in that second. And unfortunately, he didn't get a chance to really prove what he's made of. Now, Robin, what do you think? It's it's going to be fun. I mean, Cowboy Oliveira, it's funny with him. It's like there's that other guy they call Cowboy, you know, that American dude. And uh, they have a lot in common. And it's not just that hat. Like, you know, they both wear a Cowboy hat. But they're both kind of action fighters. Now, um, Cerrone obviously is the smoother, you know, uh, more experienced guy who over time got more able to sort of assassinate you. But at his root and who he's always been is kind of like, well, if we end up grappling, I'll try to beat you there. And if we end up striking, I'll try to beat you there. And basically it's what we kind of end up calling the action fighter, right? And Cowboy Oliveira's an action fighter. And um, when uh, uh, Mark Hominick back in the day, wanted to fight Uriah Faber. And Sean Tompkins was talking to me about it. He's like, look, it, at, at its root, no matter how you're going to approach an action fighter and an improvisational fighter and a guy who kind of, you know, is open-ended with the way he puts his combinations and his, and his grappling together, you have to fight him with advanced basics. And you have to fight him icy cool. And that's why this fight matches up well is because Holman, Piotr Holman, is icy cool and he uses really strong advanced basics. So the way you beat this flashy guy throwing crazy things, trying to dive under your back, always making large movements, everything is like large, open-ended movements, is you beat him with small movements and small choices, direct lines, straight lines, you know, small risk, and Holman does that. Uh, having said that, I don't think he's, at, you know, like fundamentally as good at doing that as Oliveira is at doing his thing. So when you match them up, they match up as a, a logical sort of uh, fight philosophy versus fight philosophy. But I think Oliveira is just a little better at it. He's in Brazil. Guys like this that are kind of like um, uh, uh, action fighters are driven by emotion. He never seems to get tired. So guys driven by emotion, it's like, cool, he's driven by emotion. He's going to go crazy. Oh, shit, middle of the second round, he's done. That's not the case with him. He'll be driven by emotion, which makes him even more aggressive. And he probably he won't get tired because it's not kind of in his nature. And he's in super good shape. So I think Cowboy is is uh, is the guy here. But I think it's like I agree with Patrick again. Patrick, you're killing it tonight. Um, uh, it is much closer than they're saying. Like this is not one of those ones. On pay It's easy when you look. Sometimes the idea of the odds maker, we're like, well, what is an odds maker? Like, what are these guys doing? You know, how did this happen? Oh, well, sometimes they literally open up something on their computer and go, well, this guy lost to that guy, and he gets submitted, but that guy's good at submissions, so, and it's in, yeah, so we'll make the odds this way. Like, it is impossible. They don't have experts. They don't have people who dig into every one of these fights. A lot of the time they use numbers, and the numbers say Cowboy wins this fight, and I think we're all kind of thinking he does, but it's a much closer fight than the odds makers have it. But in the end, 
All they need to do is be right. They don't need to be right by a blowout. They need to be right by, in the end, if you're losing the fight, but you win it at the last moment and they're right, they're right. That, and that's why uh, uh, your uh, odds picks and, uh, and you making predictions and being right most of the time, and there's a million variables to why you're right. But if you're right more often than you're wrong, and it sounds like you are, and I think uh, you are more uh, right more often than you're wrong, then it doesn't matter how you get there. People should follow you, and they should take your picks. Yeah, yeah I appreciate the compliment, my man. And, you know, like you guys were mentioning, you know, obviously Alex Cowboy, he is the more technical guy on paper, but Piotr Holman, he does have those variables that you can't measure, that heart, that will to win, that third round when potentially Alex Cowboy is gas and Piotr Holman is, you know, He's, uh, he's going to put it on him if, if, that, if that's what happens. So it's going to be very interesting to see what goes down when they meet in Sao Paulo. Now, we got to talk about one of the most exciting fights, not just of this car, but of the entire year. And, man, I don't even know where to start. We're talking about Tomas Almeida versus Anthony El Toro Burchak. And, man, this is going to be good. I've gone on record many times saying that Tomas Almeida is a future UFC champion, but this could be the first roadblock for him. He might need that, maybe not, but it's going to be interesting because with Tomas Almeida, I love the way this guy strikes, you know. His punches are crisp, you know. He mixes it up to the body. Once you start blocking high, you throw some flying knees, you'll throw a leg kick. I mean, he's got the entire striking package, and another thing I really like about him is his heart, you know. A lot of people like to talk about how Brad Pickett almost finished Tomas Almeida, and I completely 100% disagree with that. You know, there's a difference between getting dropped and getting back up and getting dropped and almost getting finished. You know, for example, Nate Diaz versus Melvin Gillard. Ten seconds into that fight, Melvin drops Nate, and Nate just pops back up. It was no big deal. But then you look at a fight like Chris Weidman versus Anderson Silva, the second time they fought. In that first round, Chris Weidman drops Anderson Silva from the clinch. He hits him in the ear, it looked like. He almost finished Anderson. That's almost finishing someone in the first round there. But Brad Pickett and Tomas Almeida, I do not think that Tomas Almeida was almost finished. But another thing I do like about him is, you know, that confidence he has. You know, it's interesting. You know, a lot of people show the highlight of the flying knee he landed on Brad Pickett. But what they don't show is that Brad Pickett actually threw a flying knee like two seconds before that at Tomas Almeida. So it's almost like Tomas being like, oh, yeah, you want to fucking throw that at me? I'll throw one right back at you. The kid... He's just got balls in, you know, he's got that will to win. But when you talk about Burchek, man, the only way this guy has lost is via submission. But on the feet, you know, he's got some power and he's got very good wrestling. So he can keep a fight standing if he wants. He can take it to the ground. But Tomas Almeida is one of those special strikers. So it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. Now, Robin, let's talk about the most exciting fight of UFC Sao Paulo. Yeah, it's fun. Uh uh, again, when you're kind of looking at things, you have to realize sometimes that it's like, oh, shit, we're wrong sometimes. In fact, then you're looking like, oh, we're wrong a lot of the time uh, because that's the nature of the unpredictability of fighting. And I was super wrong about Almeida. Like, I was super wrong about him because it's like you're looking at it and you're like, well, yeah, he came in with one of these giant records, you know, against guys who weren't that good. And his offensive weaponry looks really good. He's super committed to, to landing, but guys like that can get hit. And when they get hit, it's easy to go through your whole life beating everybody up. You're 15 and 0, you're 16 and 0, you're 17 and 0, you're the hammer. What happens when you're the nail? 
that's that's the big question and and uh, Brad Pickett made him the nail and um, anybody who would look at that and see that as a detriment to Almeida those people are crazy because that was the greatest gift that Almeida ever had was being put into a difficult situation and going oh yeah I am totally made to overcome this kind of shit. I am absolutely, without question, like roadblocks are huge, setbacks are huge. Like the the the, the chance to be, you know, um, uh, almost finished, great. Because if you almost finished him and didn't, that's a huge accomplishment for him. So that for me turned a giant corner. And uh, Sean Shelby in Saskatoon when. Um, who was it? Max Holloway was fighting. Shelby was, you know, that night Sam Stout got finished and his career finished. And there was a short conversation about kind of the, the hardships or the, the challenges of being involved in fighting. And, uh, you know, uh, Sean expressed those things that, you know, it's a hard job and it's a lot of work and, and there are some downsides to it. And then he said, but the upside, when, you, when you've been around the game as long as I have, and you see a kid like this, who not only is this talented and this special, but finds this much joy in not only fighting, but training in every element, that's special. And I look at Sean Shelby, who I've talked to about Ronda Rousey, and I've talked to about all kinds of fighters, and I'm thinking, okay, if, if this guy fucking blew Sean Shelby's mind, then he's the real deal. So uh, that, to me, says that... Uh, you know, if he's if, if he's capable of doing that 19 times in a row, if he's capable of doing that when he's hurt, if he if by being around people that have been around thousands of good and really good and very good fighters uh, are like really blown away by him, then Anthony Burchak, who is a phenomenal fighter and a fun fighter and will give him a challenge. Anthony Burchak is a, a mountain that Almeida is ready to, to climb. And, uh, you know, tight combinations, being mentally aware, being super focused, being uh, willing to re uh, react when he needs to, but not anticipate too much. Almeida should be able to win this fight. And uh, I was not a believer, but I, I'm wrong a lot. You know, I was not a believer about Johanna Jacek after uh, she uh, won that first fight for the belt. I was like, you know, she beat a girl who didn't want to be in there with her. And uh, everybody's got a nice straight right hand when they're fighting somebody who's desperately trying to wrestle. You're wrong a lot. That's the game, you know, and uh, it's part of the fun. And it's a long, ongoing thing. And But uh, Almeida's the real deal. Yes, he is. Now, Pat, is this going to be the first roadblock in Tomas Almeida's career? And just talk about his striking style. Yeah, so he he's an interesting kind of striker. Um he doesn't have, though he comes from a shoot box, from, from shoot box, he doesn't come from, like, the main shoot box facility. So his coach is Diego Lima, who was a student of Luis Azaredo. Uh, when Luis Azaredo left shoot box and moved to Sao Paulo, he opened up his own shoot box affiliate, and he trained Diego Lima, who ha also has a background in boxing, and I think he's done some Dutch-style work, too. Uh, so it's a kind of a different style that, that Lima has taught to guys like Felipe Aranches, and, and Almeida is his prize student. Um, he, his game reminds me a lot of Niki Holtzkins, um, great, uh, great Dutch kickboxer, uh, but somebody who relies heavily on his hands. He's not, Almeida is not like big on kicks, um, but he, he relies a lot on punching combinations, head-body punching combinations. He likes being in the pocket, uh, and he likes the flying knee, too. Um, if, you give him, if you give him space for it, he likes the flying knee. Um, Almeida 
is at his most comfortable in those middle distances. There, there are few fighters who are more comfortable working in that space in all of MMA than Tomas Almeida. Um, and he mixes in, his shot selection is fantastic, his volume is great. Um, we've heard a lot in the lead-up to this about Almeida's bad defense. There's nothing wrong with Almeida's defense. The problem is that Almeida gets hit a lot. Almeida gets hit a lot uh, because he spends a lot of time in ranges where he can be hit. Like, and he works at a pace that guarantees that the amount of strikes flying back and forth, it means he's going to get hit. It means he's going to get hit a bit. The same is true to some extent of Conor McGregor, though I would say Conor McGregor is more hittable on a shot-for-shot -shot basis than Almeida is. You look at Almeida's defensive numbers, percentage-wise, he gets hit with remarkably few shots, considering all those other variables. Um, now, with that said, I think Birchak is going to hit him. Birchak is going to hit him with big punches because Birchak is a, is a talented puncher. He's, a, he's very fast. He's very athletic. Uh, he hits real hard. So it stands to reason that Almeida, as he's finding his distance, is going to get hit some. Um, but, you know, with that said, like Robin pointed out, like Almeida knows what that's like. Almeida's been in wars before. Um, even on the regional scene, he put on, I think, the best fight on the regional scene of 2013 with a guy named Vinicius Zani in Brazil. Um, just an, an, an incredible, extraordinary fight uh, that Almeida eventually won by, by knockout in the fourth round. It was a five-round fight. Um, I think it's going to take him a while here. Birchak's a tough dude. Birchak's never been finished by strikes. I think it's going to take him a while, but as, as the fight goes on, as we get into like the third round, Almeida's pace and pressure is going to take a toll. Eventually, he puts Birchak down for the count. Now, real quick, Pat. Obviously, they're completely different styles of strikers, but who do you think is a better striker? Tomas Almeida or Conor McGregor? Very different. I love this question. Go on. Very different. Very different styles of strikers. Uh, who pro oh. they, they try and do? I, I mean, Almeida. Almeida is a is a guy who likes to be in the pocket. Like I said, McGregor is not somebody who necessarily likes to be in the pocket, except on his terms. So Almeida is happy to exchange in the middle of the, like out in the middle of the cage. When McGregor's exchanging, it's because he's backed you up to the fence and he's fighting from the high ground there. He's he's got you such that your feet are such that your feet are up against the fence. You can't get power into your shots. When he unloads, it's always when he it's almost always when he has the advantage. Um, I think that shot for shot, McGregor is a much more powerful puncher. I think there are a few punchers as powerful as Conor McGregor is. Um, he does a his pressure is different in the way that he uses his kicks to to operate with his pressure. Almeida is often forced into pressuring because because guys don't want to be in the pocket with him. Whereas I think that McGregor is a born and bred pressure fighter. There's a there's a difference between those two things. Um, so, um, in terms of better, I don't I don't know I, I don't I wouldn't say that one is better. I'd say that they're different. They do different things in equally effective in, in equally effective fashions. Yeah, they are completely different. I mean, but Robin, I gotta know, man. Would you better oh, start? I'm I'm willing to go hard that McGregor is way better. I think. Uh, and it's, it's funny sometimes, it's like some of these, you know, again, when you're talking about opinions, part of analysis is informed opinions, but uh, people don't always agree with you. And when people dislike somebody, they will disagree a lot harder. But uh, like, that's okay. But personally, as somebody who, you know, I'd like to think more than the guy on the internet who's going to be angry with me for saying this, I've been immersed in it for eight years and looking at it and training it and getting kicked by these people and, and training with them. And Conor McGregor is an incredibly fucking special uh, kickboxer in the context of mixed martial arts. 
And yes, he's a lot bigger and yeah, he generates power, but his timing and his fluidity and, and I think in his case, the big one isn't when we look at videotape and try to compare how he does it. It's when you understand what he's doing with his mentality, when you really recognize the power of his confidence. And when you go in and you fight somebody, it's easy to become discouraged. Uh, when uh, Chad Mendez, also uh, Patrick said earlier he gets hit, and he does, but he gets hit with counter right hands in exchanges that he initiates when his left hand, which is his super weapon, comes back because he's kind of using the momentum in a way that's a little closer to traditional martial arts, probably something that he's repaired right now because he's got a growth mentality and he's constantly improving. We look at these guys as permanent examples of something, as their binary. This is what they are. He is not, and, and uh, I think Chris Weidman, if we're going to look at his fight, I think Ronda, I think uh, Demetrius, a lot of these people, when we're looking at what they do, they are not t uh, permanent. They are ever-changing. And Conor McGregor is an incredibly special athlete for a million reasons. It's his technique, yes. It's his execution, yes. It's his timing. It's his distance. But it's his mentality, how he learns, and how he handles the psychological pressure pressures of warfare. I think he's super rare. He's going to uh, beat Aldo. He's going to beat him handily. People are still going to find ways to kind of say it's not real. And then he's going to go up to 155 pounds. And he's probably going to beat up some people there too. He's very, very, very rare and very, very, very special. Yeah, I'm very high on McGregor myself. You know, obviously, his striking is incredible, his shot selection, but the mentality that you talk about, that confidence, that will to win, I mean, it's going to take a lot to mentally break Conor McGregor, and I definitely see him defeating Jose Aldo to get the undisputed UFC featherweight title. Now, we got to talk about Glover Teixeira versus Pat Cummins, and this is really interesting, and I think this fight is closer than the odds indicate because, you know, with Pat Cummins, he usually is winning the majority of his fights, and the ones that he does lose, he he wins those, you know, he's winning the rounds until he gets caught. So with Glover, you know, I don't see Glover, you know, establishing a jab, throwing a leg kick, keeping the fight on the feet. I see Patrick Cummings, you know, winning the majority of the fight, and either it's going to, you know, go to a decision, he's going to be able to grind it out, or somewhere along the way, he's going to get caught with one of Glover's counters. I don't think that Glover Teixeira can take down Patrick Cummins. Now, Pat, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, you see the path to victory for Cummins, right? Because he's an exceptionally talented chain wrestler, and once he gets a hold of you, he's just suffocating. It's impossible to get away from him. I mean, he does an excellent job of combining, you know, singles, doubles, he, he spins around your back, grabs a rear waist cinch, hits the mat return, then he's into a top ride, then you try and get away, and he manages to spin, so he's on top. Uh, then, after a while of him just pounding away on top, you manage to kind of scramble back, but, but really, that's Cummins letting you get to that position so he can go back to the top ride, then you get back to your feet, and, well, what do you know? He's taking you down again. Um, that's a game plan that worked for Phil Davis when he fought Glover Teixeira. Exactly that game plan. That's exactly what Phil Davis did to him, and Cummins is every bit as talented as Phil Davis in those spaces. That's a, that's a tall statement, and I know that I, I could get some disagreement about that. I, I agree. I, hmm? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, he's a, he's an incredible wrestler and top control specialist, and, and and just a control specialist. The second he gets his hands on you, now the problem is, unlike Phil Davis, Cummins is not as defensively sound on the way in, and it's and he's we've seen him get clipped before multiple times by just about everybody he's fought on the way in. And if Glover clips you on your way in, 
then you're probably going to sleep. So that's the basic dynamic of the fight, right? Is can Glover keep this at range? Can Glover hit Cummins as he's on his way in? And can Glover separate and create space once Cum- if Cummins does grab a hold of him? So you see Cummins' path to victory. The question is how long he can do that without, without eating the big shot that puts him down. For sure. Now, Robin, do you think he can keep it up for three straight rounds? Or somewhere along the way, is Glover Teixeira going to land you know, a big left hook or a big uppercut? It is fun. And, uh, again, it's another one of these ones where you're like, oh, yeah, that matchmaking actually looks pretty fun. They're both in their mid-30s. They're both kind of lingering around there. We're in Brazil, so you would want somebody that Glover Teixeira, you know, can can um, play in the sandbox with. But on the other hand, you've got a guy who's probably a better wrestler than him. Teixeira is more experienced. It, it's a fun one. I mean, uh, I I looked at that Phil Davis fight too, and uh, I watched it this week, going, well, you know, I, I'm I'm gonna get myself excited for the uh, Teixeira and Cummings fight. And uh, Phil Davis found their way, and uh, maybe Cummings looks at that too. But again, it's like. Teixeira had to learn something from that. He had to learn something from choices, what he needed to improve, how to like develop from that. But also, Bader's pretty damn good at those things too. And Bader, when he was like, oh, I got him hurt, made those mistakes. So sometimes it's like, you know, where are you in the moment of the fight? Cummins seems to be, we were talking about urgency earlier, and there are times where, you know, uh, urgency is a great thing. And then there's times where it's like, oh, right, you're super urgent. So either you're going to finish him or get finished. And Cummins seems like one of those guys. I, I, it's a fun one. Yeah, and you mentioned the Bader like fight. Yeah. You mentioned the Bader fight. And, you know, Bader did hurt Teixeira. And, you know, he was going for the finish on the feet. Now, the difference with Cummins is that if somehow, by some stretch of the imagination, he hurts Glover standing, I don't think he's going to follow up. I think he's going to go straight for the legs and try to take him to the ground. That's the difference. What do you think, Rob? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and it's the right point, especially if you watch that. Like, if you watch that highlight reel over and over again, you're like, and if Bader watches it, he's like, why didn't I just drop him on his ass and rain some down while he was hurt? The, the beauty of that moment is how Teixeira in the chaos – Watch his eyes in that moment. Literally, he's like, oh, shit, bitch. I just got you. You know what I mean? You hurt me, but now I drew you in where I'm either an overhand right or a left hook or an uppercut. You literally walked in here, and all I had to do to draw you into my assassination was get a bit hurt. No problem. I used to spar chocolate L every fucking day. You know, that's Glover Teixeira's thinking, right? So that idea of hurting him and then going in to finish him, he's like, oh, I'm still conscious, I still have my focus, I'm still able to be mobile, oh, you're dead. So you can't do that. But I think you're right. I think Cummins, if that urgency, see, this is one of the issues. Sometimes we're like, oh, why didn't he do X, Y, and Z? The reason you don't do X, Y, and Z, especially if you're Cummins who only has 10 fights, is because fights are fucking stressful. The moment is stressful. The sound of the crowd is stressful. The fucking heat of the lights are stressful. You're like, all right, it's uh, Bruce Buffer again. Oh, shit, the, the crowd is doing this. My heart rate is really high. Shit, he punched me in the face. He's a 235-pound a man who was 205 pounds yesterday, hit me with a four-ounce glove. I can't see normally. It's like being on mushrooms. 
being in a fight sometimes. So predicting somebody's choices are not like, well, if I was in there and I was like on the ground, I would go for the Kimura. Your fucking brain is going, wow, and the lights are moving. It literally at times in a fight is like you're on mushrooms. That's not true for Glover Teixeira, okay? It's true for, it's probably true for Pat Cummings, Pat Cummins, but it's probably not true for Teixeira, and it wasn't true when he was hurt against the fence, and that's a big difference in a fight. But uh, it's all these elements that make fights so interesting, and it's all, all these elements that make it so hard, so much more than his boxing is better, or I don't know, he gets more tired. It's these little elements. Everything you learn about these things make you go, oh, fuck, fights are awesome. Yeah, absolutely, and that that was just a great breakdown, man. You know, you brought up some really good points, and one thing about Cummins is that, you know, he gets marked up really easily. You know, if you watch a lot of his fights, you know, he often has uh, two black eyes and this and that, but with, the way to finish this guy is to finish him. You can't just uh, make him quit. You have to put him out cold. Now, Pat, I got to know, man, do you agree with me when I say that this fight is closer than the odds indicate? Because currently, Patrick Cummins is a plus 400 underdog. Yeah, I do think it's a, I do think it's closer than that. Um, also, because you know this is this is a, and this is a real factor here. Um, Teixeira is getting older. Teixeira is 36. Teixeira has been a professional since uh, he had his first professional fight in 2002. He's been fighting consistently since 2004. Um, you know, time is time is weighing down on him, and there's a real chance that he comes out and just doesn't look like the same guy. Um, especially because this is his his second fight in the past three months. He only fought uh, he only fought three months ago. Uh, that's a lot of wear and tear to do to do two fight camps back to back like that. Um, to cut weight twice back to back like that. It's just a lot. It's just a lot for him. And so he could come out looking like not the same guy. It's entirely possible. Uh, so yeah, that, I do think it's closer than that. That is a really great point. That is a really really good point. Because you know if that happens, all of a sudden, and like you know Patrick's just saying, it's like all of a sudden. It's like, what happened? We were expecting him to do this. And tonight, this is all he's capable of. And at plus 400, again, that goes back to odds making. It's like some guy is looking at some MMA math and a few statistics. But if any of these variables is ever in play, a guy gets a stomach illness the night before a fight. A guy cuts weight, and for whatever reason, when he's rehydrating, he gets diarrhea. All this stuff affects every fight. And it's all of these elements that makes every fight so intriguing. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of getting older, in the main event, we got 45-year-old Dan Hendo Henderson taking on the, the old dinosaur, the old lion, Vitor Belfort. And this is going to be interesting. You know, it's a trilogy. They fought twice before. Hendo won the first time. You know, he got, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but... Didn't he get a couple of 30-24s or 30-25s on the scorecards? Do any of y'all know? You know, no, I think it was a very close one. It was Pride in America. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it was close. Ram Dean was there, so he talks about it incessantly. Ram Dean is my partner uh, at Fight Network. And Ram Dean is, like, obsessed with Hendo and Big Nog and those guys. And he was at that fight. I think it was close, but uh, I'll have to go back and watch it. That's a really good point. And I'll have to do it before our pre-show on Saturday. Yeah, well, Robin, you know, it's funny you bring that up because when I watched it a couple years back, I thought it was close too, but I was reading an article the other day, and I think they, there were some pretty ridiculous scorecards. But then again, with Pride, you know, the first round is 10 minutes, and, you know, this is a completely different era. And, you know, obviously when they met in the rematch, Vitor Belfort, that, that was the, you know, the, the young dinosaur Vitor, he, uh, 
he had kicked him into oblivion. But now, you know, he's kind of looking a little bit deflated. We all know the surrounding issues. And, you know, one really important factor that I want to talk about is that as you get older, your speed starts to get starts to diminish. And one thing that Vitor Belfort has always been known for is his speed. I mean, the way that guy blitzes you, I mean, he's got a signature blitz. We can all agree with that. But when it comes to power, that's the last thing to go. And, you know, even though Hendo is 45 years old, I mean, he can be 60 years old and he lands that big right on your chin. You're still going down. Power is the last thing to go. As you get older, your speed diminishes. Pat, what's your take on that? Yeah, I, it, it uh, the punch really is the last. Uh, the punch really is the last thing to go. I mean, for a guy like Vitor, though, you know, he's had speed to burn, and Hendo too has had speed to burn. So, like, you know, the drop off in their case, when you start off, and when you start off at a higher level, you've got uh, you've got a little more margin for error as you as you get older. Like, you see that with Robbie Lawler too. Like, Robbie Lawler is not as fast as he was in his younger years, but he more than makes up for it with more craft and technique. Um, now, in, in the case of Belfort and Henderson, um, I don't exactly know what to expect from this fight, given the uh, the well publicized uh, the well publicized uh, uh, drug issues there. You know, like neither guy is the guy that they were even even two years ago. Uh, Belfort came out looking like uh, looking like an advertisement for Dad Bod against Chris Weidman. Um, like he's just not the dude that he was. Now, with that said, he still got the burst, right? Like he still came out and he he put a he put six, seven, eight clean punches on Chris Weidman at the start of that fight. Whether he can do that against Dan Henderson now, another what is this? Like another five months removed, another six months removed um, from from being on testosterone replacement, um, with another six months of wear and tear, another full fight camp, um, and conversely, Dan Henderson, same deal. Like he looked, he looked pretty good against Tim Boach, but prior to that, he had not looked good. He had gotten knocked out uh, by he'd gotten knocked out by uh, by Vitor. Gotten dominated by Dan Henderson or by uh, by uh, Daniel Cormier. It's hard to say. Or he got knocked out by uh, by uh, uh, Gegard Mousasi. It's hard to say what Henderson really has in the tank. I mean, like I guess I kind of have to favor Vitor by default, just because I feel like his he has looked better in the not in the in the more recent past. But I have no idea what to expect from this. Like there is no outcome that would surprise me here. Now, Pat, you did mention the fact that. You know, Vitor, he did try to do that blitz against Chris Weidman, and in my opinion, it wasn't as explosive as it has been in the past. Now, i got to ask you, in your opinion, was it a red flag how easily he got taken down, or is that just credit to the beast Chris Weidman? Like, outside of the time when he was on testosterone, when he was, like, demonstrably on testosterone replacement therapy, Vitor Belfort has never had great takedown defense, ever, in his entire career. Like, so that to me looked more just like a reversion to form than anything else. But like, if you're looking for a time when Dan Henderson actively used takedowns to win fights, like entire careers have come and gone in the UFC since Dan Henderson was like actively looking to out wrestle guys. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if Henderson got a takedown or two, but like, I, I don't know. I don't think that you can count on that as being his game plan. I think he's going to be happy to slug it out. and I think Vitor will be too. Now, Robin, do you view it as a red flag how easily Chris Weidman passed the guard of a Carlson Gracie black belt? Or, I mean, is that just the beast and the champion Chris Weidman doing his thing? Well, Chris is a monster. He really is. But uh, I thought Vitor looked pretty bad. And, uh, I mean, we have to, like you were talking about uh, punching power and speed. And we have to really look at what that is. Like, what is speed? It's the ability to execute technique using 
your your body. And if your body doesn't move as quick, if your muscles are atrophied, I mean, get a woman who is 53 years old and ask her to do the gymnastics moves that she did when she was 19 and she won't be able to do it. Why? Well, she's not as well rehearsed, so let's rehearse her, but her body doesn't move as well. And uh, I think there's no doubt, like when you saw him unload on Chris, first of all, that's Chris's worst performance of his whole career. Um, both uh, uh, Rockhold and Bisbing, when Vitor blitzed, two or three steps back and two steps laterally. And that's all you do against a blitz. Everybody knows it. Like guys who train for six months do it. Never mind super experts like these fighters. Chris backed himself up and shelled up. Now he said after, he was like, okay, let him burn himself out and I'll finish him. And it did go that way. But super jacked Vitor, Chris might have been finished because a shell here, that punch through the hand knocked people out. He was super jacked. While we're at it, also, uh, we've got analysts sitting here. We've got um, we've got uh, technique junkies sitting here. We've got uh, people that talk about those details. What we really need here is an endocrinologist, <laughs> because that is the biggest aspect. Right? It really is. It really, really is. You take a guy who, you know, first of all. At 36 years old, if you really needed testosterone, it wasn't like like testosterone uh, therapy. It wasn't like, well, you're not a great fighter because your testosterone is kind of low, so we'll let you take it. It was like your testosterone is so low, you would be sick as a human being. You would not be functional. You would not be able to – you'd be like Anderson Silva with your wife, you know? You would <laughs> not be able to like – you would not be able to make it happen with your girl. You'd be depressed. You'd be sleeping 12 hours a night. You medically require testosterone. If that's the case and you can't use it anymore, I'm sorry, you are not an elite professional athlete. So guys who, if, if one of two things are a lie. I really did need testosterone because I was medically ill without it. If that was true, then you're playing catch me if you can and you're cheating now. Or I needed uh, testosterone because I was super sick and I couldn't survive without it. Okay, just kidding. I can survive without it. One of the two are lies. And while we're at it, Vitor wasn't on TRT. Vitor was medically allowed to use testosterone and they didn't test for growth hormone. They didn't test for um, insulin growth factor. There was a lot of things they didn't test for. And 35-year-olds who take enough tests to be a healthy human being don't look like Vitor Belfort looked. So this is not a, oh, Vitor was on TRT. Vitor had medically allowed testosterone and probably cheated. And I can say that legally because I said probably, but he probably did if you look at all the anecdotal evidence of how people use steroids and what happened. So remove all that shit now because not only you're not on TRT, but we can't but we do test for growth hormone, we do test for insulin growth factor, we do test for all those things, you end up with a dad bod. If you have a dad bod, your body doesn't move the same. You don't kick the same. You don't, you're not as explosive. Your feet don't move the same. Your footwork isn't the same. The way you express yourself as a martial artist isn't the same. So if Vitor Belfort is truly off, Vitor, let's put it this way. Vitor Belfort can either win the fight or pass a drug test. I don't think he can do both. <laughs> I, think I don't think he can do both. 
So, Robin, you use the word probably. Now, let me ask you something. Are you probably telling me that I should take a shot on the plus 300 dog, Dan Anderson? Well, no, because if Vitor wins and fails a drug test, the uh, bow dog or whoever will not give you your money back. Uh, well, also, we're in Brazil. But oh, sorry. I should have. It might have be worth a shot, Vitor though. Either... Yeah, yeah, it is worth a shot. It really is. I should have said Vitor can either win the fight or pass a drug test in Nevada <laughs> because we're also in Brazil. And all of that matters. It's like, like the three of us love fighting. We love that. We love martial arts. We love the techniques of this, but this fight is not really in the end about that. And that's sad. That's sad for us. It's sad for people who love fighting because it really is a lot more about the physiological makeup of the musculature of the, and the endocrine system of Vitor Belfort. Because if he is fully off drugs and truly required them to be a healthy human being, then there's no way he can fight. Oh, wait, he looks pretty good and he can fight? Okay, he's cheating and he's finding a way. There's not both. I don't care how much you pray. Like, there isn't both, you know? Yeah, and I mean, the guy's been jacked out of his mind since he was 19 years old. But, Robin, I want you to put on your prediction hat right now. Which guy's going to show up? Is it going to be the old lion, young dinosaur, or is it going to be the deflated welterweight? Oh, man, that's a tough one because Dan was on the shit, too. <laughs> you know? And he's 46. He's 45. I'm 46. And the idea of getting up, Right now, now I have had three beers, and I am hanging out with my friends talking about fighting. So that is not fair. But the idea of getting up right now and fighting Vitor, I'm like, fuck that, <laughs> you know. Uh, but Dan Henderson still does it. Does he do it for love? Does he do it for money? Does he do it for? He asked for this fight. Oh, prediction hat. I'm gonna say Dan Henderson's gonna win it. I'm gonna say Vitor's gonna come out, look like a dad bod. He's gonna do a lot of praying and say, Jesus, even though. I'm not on drugs anymore. Even though you think I should have been on drugs and you gave me all the rights to be on the drugs and I'm not on them anymore, I know I can beat this guy. And he's going to wake up after and go, well, I guess Jesus wanted Dan to win. <laughs> now, Pat, I want you to put on your prediction cap real quick. Which Vitor is showing up on Saturday? Um, I think a diminished version of Vitor Belfort that probably still has enough to finish a much diminished version of Dan Henderson. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now... I want to thank you guys so much for joining me on this episode of Half the Battle. Before we wrap things up, I want to know, what's your guys' fight to watch for UFC Sao Paulo? Robin, what's your fight to watch? Oh, man. Uh, I, I still think Burns and Magomedov. I, I still think that's the one with that urgency that, oh, shit, he's going to kill me if I don't get a hold of him. Or no problem, I won't let him get a hold of me and I'll smash him up. I think that urgency uh, of the way that their skills and their talents and uh, their fighting styles match, I think the urgency of that fight is going to make it the one to watch. Now, Pat, what's your fight to watch for UFC Sao Paulo? Uh, for me, it has to be Almeida Birchak. Uh, I've been I've been following Tomas Almeida very closely for more than two years at this point. I think he's a special, special talent. Um, and I think he's got a perfect dance partner here in Birchak. I think that these guys are going to throw literally hundreds of strikes at each other. It's going to be a crazy, unbelievable fight. In my mind, going to be a contender for fight of the year. Yeah, I agree with both of your 
fights to watch. And my fight to watch is Chas Kelly versus Kevin Souza. You know, obviously, briefly, you know, earlier in the show, we mentioned how on paper, you know, it might be a little striker versus grappler, but certain things happen once they step inside the octagon. You know, maybe Chas Kelly gets his takedown stuff, maybe he eats a couple body kicks and he's forced to stand with Kevin Souza, or maybe he takes down Kevin Souza and breaks him and chokes him out. So I'm very intrigued to see what happens with Skelly and Souza. Now, Robin, who's your fighter to watch for UFC Sao Paulo? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, you know what, Chaz Skelly. I'm going to go with Chaz Skelly on that one. I think you're going to see a super driven, you know, ornery, kind of uh, nasty, mediocre bodied looking bad haircut Americans show up and kick some ass. <laughs> and that's really fun to watch. And, and that I really enjoy seeing those guys who break people. You know, who go in and just absolutely break people. And Chaz Skelly's that kind of guy. And that's the guy. Um, uh, I That fight, I love your fight to watch, Daniel. And uh, and I think that is among them. But the fighter to watch for me is Skelly in that one. Yeah, I feel you on that 100%. Now, Pat, who's your fighter to watch? Uh, Skelly. Skelly. I like Skelly quite a bit. Um, I think he's an interesting uh, I think he's an interesting bundle of skills, and I like his attitude. I like his attitude a lot. Uh, I think he's he's got great killer instinct. You know, uh, he it, like he's been penalized twice for for kneeing guys when they're down, and like 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 let's be honest, that's not awesome. But there's an there's an underlying mindset there that is it, he's just nasty with the way he gets at it. He's got a brawler. He's got a brawler's instincts and mentality buried underneath uh, buried underneath the kind of grinding wrestle grappling game. I think he's a, he's a fighter I enjoy watching a great deal. Yeah, for sure. I like Chaz a lot, too. You know, I actually had him on half the battle, and we talked all about the fight, and, you know, he's oh. very confident in all areas of the game against Kevin Souza. He said if he wants to take down Kevin Souza, he's going to take him down. Now, my fighter to watch is Anthony Burchak, and I'll tell you why. This guy has a huge opportunity in front of him in hostile territory. I mean, if he goes out there and he can be the first roadblock in Tomas Almeida's career – holy shit, the sky could be the limit for Anthony Burchak. So this is a very monumental moment in his career, and for that reason, I think he's the fighter to watch for UFC Sao Paulo. Now, once again, I want to thank you guys so much for joining me on this very special edition of Half the Battle. Robin, just go ahead, you know, plug anything you want to plug, thank any, anyone you want to thank, and let us know what's coming up with you and the Fight Network and all those other great things you got coming up. Well, at first, I just want to thank you guys for hanging out. Like, it's really fun on, like, a night to make some new friends and talk. And I'm really kind of, like, in fighting. I think fighting is a very special thing, and I think a lot of people are very samey. And you guys have your own things, and that's why I like hanging out with you. Like, Daniel, to, to really focus on picking fights and focus on the details of that, if that's going to be your focus, could really develop the, like, the minutiae around that. And I think that's a really cool thing. And Patrick, I think as a technique guy, I, it's been really fun hanging out and getting your guys' perspective. And I want who I want to thank is you guys. And if, if people want to, like, check out Fight Network, it's, we're on YouTube and, and there's a fightnetwork.com and my Twitter is Robin Black MMA. But, uh, I, I really enjoyed this, and I really I want to thank you guys for hanging out with me. It's, it's, it's fun to make new friends. 
Hell yeah, man. And you're welcome back anytime you want, Rob. And now, Pat, you know, just go ahead, plug anything you want to plug, thank anyone you want to thank. You know, obviously, the Heavy Hands podcast for all, you know, for everyone that trains striking or just wants to know about the finer points of face punching, you have to listen and subscribe to the Heavy Hands podcast. Go to iTunes and give them a five-star rating right now. So what's up, Pat? Hey, well, I really appreciate the plug. And, you know, I, I want to thank you guys. It was, a, it was a lot of fun hanging out with you. I appreciate your perspective on things. Uh, you know, in terms of what I want to plug, I'm on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman. Um, you can find my written work on Bleacher Report MMA. I've got uh, I've got previews of uh, uh, I've got I got previews of each and every fight card on there. Um, and then I'm working on some more reported stuff too. I'm becoming a uh, I'm becoming a journalist as as we speak. I'm teaching myself to be a journalist. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, it, it was a real pleasure chatting with you guys. I appreciate it. For sure. I'd love to have both of you guys on some other time. And, you know, Robin, we were briefly speaking off air about how, you know, it's refreshing to see guys that are genuinely enthusiastic about this sport because oftentimes with modern-day MMA media, you know, a lot of these guys, it almost seems like they don't like the sport. It almost seems like they're anti-UFC and, like, they're almost, like, not very happy people. So it's cool to see, you know, people that genuinely love the sport, they have that spirit. And, you know, obviously, you know, you've fought before, Robin and Pat. I know you train Muay Thai, and I've trained for years. So, you know, I'm not trying to be one of these guys who's like, oh, if you train, then you, you know, then you're better than other people. It's not like that. It's just we genuinely love this sport. We love talking about it. We love watching it. it just, It's just such a great sport. So anything you want to touch up on, Robin? Um, well, you're opening a can of worms that I am like all about all the time. And I think the sport is covered badly. I think it's, it's, uh, you know, we're part of you know, the three of us and, and uh, a dozen or two other people are part of a group of people that are trying to look at it different. Um, and when you say you don't want to be somebody saying, Hey, we're better because we train. Listen, I, I mean, we are better because we train. Like, I, I hate to be a dick about it, but if you don't understand what it's like to get squashed or or leg locked or exhausted or pressured, then you have no right to really discuss looking at something and go, why didn't that guy do that? But again, I want to, <laughs> I'd rather end on the positivity of having a great time hanging out with friends. But hey, uh, as far as getting upset about how badly media is covered in this, in this sport, that is a anti-passion of mine. And we'll talk about that on another night. But I would propose the three of us get together the week of, uh, well, actually it might be around New Year's, but Condit and Lawler, I'd sure like to get back together and chat with you guys about that. All right. Did we lose you? Breaking up. I think we may have. Hey, breaking up is hard to do, Patrick. <laughs> it is indeed. It is indeed. But... Hey, real pleasure chatting with you guys. Yeah, pleasure chatting with you guys too. And anybody who who hung with us tonight, uh, thank you so much. And just hit us up on Twitter and tell us how Rob right now live on half the bat. Yeah, for sure. And Robin, we're definitely gonna have to get together and talk about the you know the can of worms that I almost opened on a separate podcast because we can go off for an hour or two just about that topic. You know, a lot of these guys, they don't know what side control feels like. They don't know what that chest on chest feels like. They're watching the sport and they're like, why isn't he getting up? Well, do you know what side control feels like? That's why he's not getting up. So we're going to talk all about that on another podcast, my man. And I cannot wait. Yes, we will.
Yeah, you. Uh, we will because you, you're almost uh, going to get me pacing around my room going, what is wrong with these people? But we're not going to do that tonight. Uh, but what we are going to do is plan to get together for Condit versus Lawler if we can. And, uh, man, uh, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, it Thank was. So now, much. for all the fans that are tuning in, and this is your first time seeing Half the Battle, I want to thank you so much. And the way you can find all the Half the Battle episodes is you go to soundcloud.com slash bestfightpicks. You go to YouTube. You find that Best Fight Picks channel. And all the Half the Battle episodes are there for you to enjoy. So I want to thank you guys so much. Best of luck and enjoy the fights.